So uh, I'd like if you would to turn or keep open the uh, passage we just looked at, the passage um, really looking at Joshua chapter 7. The word but is only a little word, just two consonants and one vowel. And yet it's a word that's full of significance, pregnant with meaning. Because the word but marks a turning point. In the book of Romans, the first two and a half chapters of Paul's letter outline man's hopeless state. Uh, Paul expounds uh, the sinfulness of man, Jew and Gentile alike. And he comes to a pivotal statement. He says, none is righteous. This is his conclusion. None is righteous. No, not one. It's the bleakest of pictures, isn't it, that Paul paints. But then we get to the beginning of Romans chapter 3, or sorry, Romans chapter 3, verse 21, where the word but appears. But now the righteousness of God is revealed. The sunlight of the gospel, as it were, takes over from the darkness of the picture that Paul has been painting. Now here in Joshua, similarly, we have a pivotal word but, the but that appears at the beginning of chapter 7. But in this case, the word but does not mark a turn for the better, but rather it marks a turn for the worse. Because in uh, chapter 6, which we also read, we have this dramatic account of the fall of Jericho. It's a dramatic demonstration, isn't it, of the, the power of God, not the victory of a mighty army, but the miraculous intervention of the Lord. At the beginning of the service, we read Psalm 98, which spoke of God's right hand and his holy arm. And that's what we see here in Joshua 6, the hand of God bringing the victory. Not only that, but we've got this marvellous preservation of Rahab that we read of, didn't we? The, uh, the preservation of Rahab and her family. And there's a clear message there for us, that those who put their faith in the God of Israel, for them there is mercy to be found, a way of escape from the destruction. And when you get to the end of chapter 6, it's all encapsulated in verse 27, isn't it? The Lord was with Joshua... And his fame was in all the land. All Israel would have been in no doubt as to the reality of their God. But also the nations round about. And that was a feeling that had been growing because if you go back to chapter 5, the first verse there we find the kings of the Amorites looking on at the oncoming Israelites and we're told that their hearts melted And there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. And so the fame of Joshua and the victory at Jericho would have spread round about. Now as we turn to chapter 7, the mood changes with this word but. Because against this wonderful backdrop of such a clear demonstration of God's presence and his provision we have this spectre of sin appearing, sin and disobedience. 
So we're going to look at chapter 7 under three headings. Sin committed, which is just in verse 1. Then sin exposed in the verses 2 to 13. And then finally looking at sin judged in verses 14 through to 26. In order to understand the significance of Achan's sin, we need to go back to the account that we read of the fall of Jericho. And that immediately presents us with a challenge. You notice that in verse 21. Then they devoted all the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. And then on to verse 24. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. About four years ago, I uh, had uh, some time with Fion, our youngest daughter, and we went to Israel for a, a trip. And uh, one day when we were uh, staying near Jerusalem, we went to uh, Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust uh, museum there. And uh, it's a dramatic location. The building is quite harsh. It looks like a uh, a grey, long grey Toblerone set into a delightful valley with pine trees all around. And that's the contrast that you have in that place. You go in and work your way through the museum and you you see how uh, the Jewish people were assimilated into the European countries and then with the rise of Nazism how they were persecuted. As you walk through the museum, you are confronted with the reality of the Holocaust. And it's stunning, not in beauty, but in its horror. Is this what's happening here in Joshua 21, when we read of the account of the fall of Jericho? Are we faced with man's humanity, uh, man's, uh, an evil-hearted man? Is this genocide? But the key to understanding what's happening in verses 21 and 24 of chapter 6 is to look back a little earlier to the instruction that Joshua gave to his army before the attack took place. In verse 17, we see again that phrase, the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. This term, devoted to the Lord for destruction, comes up time and time again in this passage. And it's a concept, uh, the Hebrew word is something like cherem. It's a concept which is specific to the the Israelites when they were entering the promised land. They were told about it back in Deuteronomy 20 and in verses 16 to 18. This was the instruction that God gave to Moses before they entered Canaan. And God said this, In the cities of these peoples that the Lord is giving to you for an inheritance... You shall save nothing alive that breathes. But you shall devote them to complete destruction. 
the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, as the Lord your God commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. So there's here a clear instruction in Deuteronomy as to what Joshua and the Israelites should do when they enter Canaan. But this this isn't the violent whimsy of a tyrant. The The instruction only applied to the cities in this land promised to Israel. And the instruction in Deuteronomy is given with two explanations as to why such drastic action should be carried out. And the first is, the first explanation is that there's a cause for this action. Because it's punishment, we're told, for their abominations which they've done for their gods. Jericho wasn't an idyllic city. Back in Genesis 15, God gave a promise to Abraham that his people would go into that promised land. And he said then, God said that he would destroy the Canaanites. But at that point, 400 years earlier, God said he would delay for four centuries because their iniquity was not yet complete. And so by the time Joshua has got here, These cities are harbours of sin and iniquity. And God is a holy God. He cannot stand to look upon sin. And so the the harem that was exercised was an act of judgment against sin. But the second reason given back in Deuteronomy for this, this plan was because God is a jealous God. He is concerned for his people. He wants to protect them. And we read Deuteronomy that the reason, the purpose for this uh, drastic action was to prevent and protect the Lord's people from the danger of being led astray by the Canaanites to follow their false gods. God's people would settle in these cities and the Lord knew only too well that they could so easily be led astray. See, the destruction of Jericho was not genocide because God hated the Canaanites. It was judgment because God hates sin. And if you need any further evidence... We find it in Exodus chapter 22:20, which is the first occasion this word harem is used. And it's a judgment applied to any of the Lord's people who sacrifices to another God. The concept of harem then is not a tool of racial cleansing, but a means of divine judgment for sin. The idea of harem is a little more complicated, however, and uh, from and you'll see that from the specific directions that Joshua gave to the army in verses 17 to 20 of chapter 6. Harim means devoted or set apart to God. Most of those things were to be destroyed, 
but the enduring metal items were to be used in the service of God. Either way, however, they were devoted to God. And that's why Joshua's directions to his army didn't only include instructions, but he included a warning. The warning given in verse 18. Keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest if you take any of these things, you make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble on it. And that was the root, then, of Achan's sin. It wasn't just that he'd taken something from Jericho. He'd taken something that belonged to God. And that takes us back, then, to the first verse of chapter 7. Achan had sinned. He committed theft. He took things that were not his own. But more than that, he'd taken things that belonged to God. And when God analyzes it in verse 11, he says, Achan has transgressed the covenant. He's taken the devoted things. He's stolen, he's lied, and he's put these things among his own belongings. At the root of Achan's sin was unbelief. He did not love and trust the covenant God. He showed no respect for the things devoted to him. He didn't trust God to provide everything that he needed But he took that which he saw. He took that which was the Lord's and he treated them as his own. And he didn't believe that God would hold him to account. He hid the goods in his tent in a vain attempt, a vain belief that his sin wouldn't be found out. How do we apply this to ourselves today? I think it might be helpful to think about Achan for a minute. He'd lived through extraordinary times, hadn't he? He'd been brought up in the covenant community. He'd experienced the miraculous stopping of the River Jordan. Remember, it had flooded and yet the people were able to cross on dry land. Achan knew God's moral law. He'd been taught the Ten Commandments. He knew the tenth, which was, you shall not covet. He knew right and wrong. And yet when he eventually was confronted with his sin, he has to admit, I saw, and then I coveted, and then I took. So the message to us from that is that just knowing God's law is not enough. We need to delight in it. We need to hold it for our own. We read in, we sang in Psalm 1, didn't we, that... uh, It promises that if we delight in God's word, we will be blessed and kept from sin. So does God's word, do we delight in God's word? Do we rejoice in it? Does it give us pleasure? Does it something hold close to ourselves? Let's move on then to the sin exposed in verses 2 through to 13. My parents used to grow apples. Uh, They had about um, a dozen apple trees in the garden. And each autumn they would collect the apples and store them through the winter. Uh, And they had a series of, as a young boy I was fascinated by it, they had a series of uh, big cardboard boxes 
each with individual trays in them which had uh, slots for each of the apples. And the point was the apples were kept separate from each other. The idea was that if one went was rotten, the whole collection wouldn't go bad. It was isolated from all the others. Well, unlike my parents' apples, Achan didn't live in isolation. He was part of this covenant community. So when Achan transgressed the covenant, we read that the anger of the Lord burned not just against Achan, but in verse 1 we're told that the anger of the Lord burned against the whole of the people of Israel. Achan's sin affected others. And indeed, sin and unbelief spread. So we see in verses 2 through to 4 that uh, the rest of the children of Israel then began to show signs of unbelief. We see Joshua and the children of Israel moving on to attack Ai, but God's face is turned away from them. As the spies discuss their battle plans, there's no recognition of how God had brought the victory at Jericho. And so there's no consideration of how God would be involved in their attack on Ai. In their self-confidence, they they didn't look to the Lord for their future success. And Joshua isn't immune from this either, is it? Because he unquestionably follows the advice of the spies rather than seeking the Lord's direction. Complacency infects the whole camp. Oh, they say, AI is just a little village compared with Jericho. There aren't that many people there. And the decision is taken for most of the army to take it easy rather than engage in battle. And the result is death and despondency. The attack goes horribly wrong. They have to flee down the mountain. 36 men are killed. And the reputation of the children of Israel lies in tatters. The people now fear that the Canaanites will turn in retribution on them. The tables are turned. For we see that in uh, verse 5 that the children of Israel feel just like the Canaanites had back in chapter chapter 5 verse 1. Their, uh, their hearts of the people melted and became as water. Even Joshua loses heart because uh, we find in verse 7 Joshua um, doubting the Lord's intentions in bringing them across the Jordan. In effect, Joshua blames God for the disaster that's befallen them. And he asks in the end in verse 9, what will you do to preserve the glory of your name? We see here Joshua asking, why did it happen? But the answer gives to Joshua is that it's not because the Lord has been unfaithful. It's not because God has let them down. Rather, says the Lord, it's because Israel has sinned. And we see that in verses 11 and 12. Israel has sinned. They've transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They've taken some of the devoted things, etc. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand to their enemies. 
They turn their backs to the enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. Do you notice the words that the Lord uses? They have become devoted for destruction. This isn't God chastising Israel, as we might have to with a child, correcting them. This is far more serious than that. By taking the things that were, the, that were devoted to the Lord, Achan and all Israel with him, they were now devoted for destruction. This is the same cherem that had been applied to Jericho. They too were going to be punished for their sin. And why? Because in a sense, they were no different from the Canaanites when their iniquity had been complete. And that punishment is severe. The Lord tells Joshua that he will remove himself from them due to the sin in their midst. And they will not be able to stand before their enemies until they deal with this sin and remove it from them. How can we apply that to us today? Well, firstly, I think we would do well to pause and think what an affront to God sin really is. The Shorter Catechism tells us that sin is any want of conformity to the word of God. And yet, think about the and meditate on what the consequence, what consequences sin has. It was a terrible prospect, wasn't it, that Joshua had to face here in verse 12. I will be with you no more, says God. If we take time to consider the reality of being without God's blessing in our lives, then perhaps we will be inclined to take sin a little bit more seriously. But there's a second lesson, I think, also a practical lesson to think about, and that is to see ourselves corporately rather than just as a collection of individuals. The passage that Gabriel read earlier in uh, 1 Corinthians 12 reminds us that we are together members of one body, and as different parts of the body, we're interdependent. One rejoices, we all rejoice. One's concerned, we're all concerned. One grieves, we all grieve. And if one sins, there is a sense in which we are all affected by that sin. And perhaps that in itself should provoke us to encourage one another, to ask after one another's spiritual welfare, to pray for one another in our Christian walk. And then finally, we see sin judged, and we see that in verses 14 through to 25 or 26. A couple of weeks ago, um, I had a telephone call from a client who uh, had discovered a fraud had been going on. And it was a fraud that had been actually going on for a good many years, and uh, When they uh, discovered what had been going on, they confronted the individual who had been perpetrating the fraud. And uh, at first they admitted just taking a certain amount of money, but eventually 
they got all the bank statements out and demonstrated clearly what had happened. And eventually, they had to acknowledge what they'd done. The game was up. So here with Aiken, we find that the game is up. There's a process of choosing lots whereby Aiken's tribe and then his family are selected until Aiken himself is accused. And But notice that at no point in this process does Aiken come forward and admit his guilt. It's not until he individually is selected and Joshua demands the truth that he eventually admits what is done. Stolen items were out of sight, buried under the floor of his tent. Achan thought his sin was hidden. While the people round about him were blissfully ignorant of his transgression, it was not hidden from God. Proverbs 15.3 tells us that the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. All things are seen by God. Eventually the game was up and Achan had to admit his guilt. He finally admits the true nature of his sin in, uh, in verse 20. And see who is identified as the injured party here. Remember, 36 people, 36 men had died in the route at Ai. All Israel was feeling uh, fearful of their future. All Israel had been placed under the threat of destruction because of his sin. And yet ultimately, Achan has to acknowledge here in verse 20 that his sin is against God. Isn't this the reality we have to grasp if we are to confess our sin? King David, you remember, he'd sinned against Bathsheba by committing adultery. He'd sinned against Uriah by having him murdered. But ultimately, in Psalm 51 verse 4, the penitent King David admits, Against you, O Lord, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. We sin against God. And if we do not confess our sins willingly, then one day we will all have to confess our sins because the game is up. We'll be faced with the irrefutable truth that the Lord is the one true and living God. And the scriptures tell us that on that day every mouth will be stopped and every knee confess that Jesus is Lord. Back in verse 13, Joshua had been told by the Lord to remove the accursed thing from among them. And so Achan is taken out of the camp for justice to be done. We see that in verses 24 and 25. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and the sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had and brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned him with fire, and stoned him with stones. 
Do you feel shocked by this account? This is, again, the same hechem being applied. Sin has no place in God's people. And so the accursed things have to be devoted to destruction. How then do we apply that to us today? I think the first thing is we're reminded here of the awful reality of God's justice. If you are not trusting on the Lord Jesus, then this passage should be a vivid reminder of how God regards sin. Without Christ, we are in a dangerous place. If we harbour sin in our midst, we are exposed to God's justice. For those of us who do believe, this account should spur us on to pray for our friends and ones, praying that they would realise and recognise the seriousness of their sin, turn to Christ and escape Hechem, just as Rahab did from Jericho. But there's one further point I would like us to note from this passage, because we haven't quite reached the end. Look at verse 26. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Achor meaning trouble. So at the time that the book of Joshua was written, there were two things that reminded people of this event. One was a pile of stones, marking the place where this judgment had fallen on Achan. And the other was the name of the place, the Valley of Achor, or the Valley of Trouble. Do you remember right back at the beginning in Joshua 16, when Joshua had warned his army, what did he say? If you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction, you'll bring trouble on it. So this is a fulfillment of the warning that had been given. But this isn't the last time we read about the Valley of Achor in the Bible. There is a reference to it in the book of Hosea. And the message of the prophet Hosea is that even though God's people have been unfaithful, the Lord is merciful and continues to love them. And ultimately, Hosea tells us that God will take them back and restore them. And in Hosea chapter 2 verse 15, we read that God brings his people back and that the valley of Achor will become a door of hope. How is this possible? We read here in verse 26 that once justice had been done, the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. To use a technical term, God's anger was propitiated. His anger was appeased. It was satisfied. And doesn't that point us to the Lord Jesus Christ? 
In 1 John 4.10, we're told, In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. If we're shocked at the punishment of God's justice that was meted out for Achan's sin, doesn't this remind us or demonstrate to us or show us something to give us some inkling of the sacrifice made by the Lord Jesus Christ to satisfy God's justice for our sin. And this is why the Valley of Achor, the place of trouble, the place where we should be troubled for our sin, that's why that place has become a door of hope. It's because Christ took our guilt and nailed it to the tree so that we don't have to face our own Valley of Achor. It's because of the work of Christ on the cross that for those of us who do believe, we can rest assured that the Lord has turned the fierceness of his anger away from us. May God help us to understand that and appreciate it and learn to, the love, learn to love our Lord all the more for it.